0: Good morning, I'm your host, Claudia Shambaugh, welcoming you to the May 30th, day after Memorial Day, 2023 edition of Ask a Leader. For this edition will be a segment of my longer interview with Air Force veteran Don Fisher, who served during World War II. In his later years, Don... Understood the value he had as a relic of the war period, considering his experience in training, serving, and surviving those years. So he began offering his stories to the National Archive and later shared on Ascalator. The full program is available on the October 9th, 2010 episode of Ascalator. Don Fisher died in October 2015 at the age of 97. The second segment will be the full 25-minute interview with Don Epstein, then a volunteer at Tragedy Assistance for Survivors, TAPS for short, talking about surviving his son, Joshua, who at the age of 23 died by suicide March 2011 after serving in Iraq as a Navy Casualty Assistance Officer. This interview is also available on AskLeader.com, the June 25, 2013 episode. Don Lipstein continues his connection with this Humble Radio program. He just checked in and said, yeah, run this show, run this interview, and he's moved on as a consultant, having founded a new firm. Imagine Family Recovery, which offers services to families who survive a loved one who dies by suicide after military service. We'll be right back. Thank you for joining us, guests. this morning. We are going to have as my first guest Don Fisher, whom I'll introduce in just a moment. With Just a little background on Don Fisher. Originally from Steubenville, Ohio, he served during World War II as a tech sergeant in the Air Force. After the war and after getting an education at Ohio State on the GI Bill, He was a forester at the Gifford Pinchot Forest Service in southern Washington, then taking his family to Eugene, Oregon. He worked as a forester engineer with the IRS and then vice president with Bohemia Lumber. Today, we honor Don Fisher during this week of Veterans Day as the survivor of a B-17, also known as the Flying Fortress, which was shot down, his plane was shot down over France in April 1943. Don, welcome to my show.
1: Thank you. I'm here.
0: I'm so glad that you could be with us today. I'm, um, Don, you flew on one of the 12,677 B-17 flying fortresses that were manufactured in this country. As a guy from Steubenville, Ohio, tell us a little first about your training.
1: Well, of course, I enlisted in uh, November of 42. I'm sorry, in uh, January of uh, 42, and um, spent the summer in uh, training. And it's interesting, you talk about training, how ill-prepared and hurried that everything was. The first air base I checked into in Shepherd Field, Texas, had a bare barracks, uh, no beds. and We had a mattress and an overcoat. And our training there was supposed to be basic training, consisted of learning to march, which we did. I never, uh, while at Shepherd Field, had never fired a gun or had any training like that at all. We took uh, uh, tests at Shepherd Field to show which way we we would be going. And incidentally, I, I and two of my friends ended up at Shepherd Field. high school friends. We all missed at the same time. And of course, like all young men, we wanted to be pilots. Uh, Through uh, Tricks of Fate, two of them got selected for pilot's training. They ended up in B-24s and both were killed when they were shot down over Europe. Oh my. For some reason or other, I didn't end up in pilot's training. I was sent to a radio school in uh, St. Louis, Missouri, and then to gunner's training in Las Vegas, Nevada. At one point, you talk about training, uh, Claudia. I wanted to make plain here. Yes,
0: please do. At that
1: point in building up the Air Forces, if you were a warm body and could speak and see, you didn't fail a course. So there were no failures. If you were warm, you went on to the next measure. Uh, of course I did I did pass the radio course at the uh, St. Louis and it was sent to Las Vegas where we took gunnery training. They were so short of plane then I was assigned to the 305th bomb group uh, that was training or building up at that point it wasn't even in existence yet. It was building up in uh, Dry Lakes, California, Muroc, as a matter of fact. Okay. And, and again we lived in tents there and we were supposed to be training in a B17 There was only one, as I recall, one B-17 available for our whole squadron, which meant we got practically no flight time. After after that, we were supposedly qualified and were to go to Phoenix, Arizona to pick up a new B-17. Well, we got to Phoenix, Arizona, and of course, uh, as you can imagine, the B-17s were in short supply. We didn't get any. So they put us on a train and shipped us to Prestwick, um, no, Syracuse, New York, where we did pick up a new B-17.
0: My goodness.
1: And uh, at that point, we had to, you know, break it in. It was brand new. It had been flown there from Seattle where they were built. And we did break it in. And I was assigned to that group as a ball-toured gunner. That's the man who sits in that little ball that hangs below the b seventeen. Up to that time, I had only one session in the ball tour and had never fired the uh, twin fifty calibers in that, so that kind of gives you an idea how fast they're trying to push bodies across the water.
0: Well, there were a number a string of things that you've talked about in some of these wonderfully archived interviews, and we'll we'll acknowledge those people that are keeping this really important record. You were talking about other things you're talking about your leaving. Gander Bay, Newfoundland, you were talking about, we'll talk about that, and then talk about your actual parachute harness. I mean, so many strings of things that you just, you just missed having it nail you for good, man.
1: Well, did you mention, uh, say, when we were leaving Gander Bay?
0: Exactly.
1: Yes, well, that's first thing, you know, and I, I consider myself, uh, whether it's fate or luck, I don't know what. I've survived three plane crashes in V-17s and a parachute jump. And so the first of those lucky ones happened at Gander Bay on takeoff. We were loaded, of course, and we were the last, one of the last planes to take off at night with a group to fly to Prestwick, Scotland, nonstop. And, uh, for some reason or other, our co-pilot was changed, and a colonel, as I understand it, took over, and it was a colonel that hit a co-pilot's job on takeoff to lock the tail on the B seventeen which landed on two front wheels and a tail wheel at uh, if it, if that isn't locked at going down the runway at about fifty miles an hour, the trail wheel begins to wobble and you can't take off. Our plane was loaded with uh, two large bombay tanks of aviation gas just ahead of the radio room where the whole crew was concentrated except for the pilots and the people in the front. The pilot couldn't get off the ground because of an unlocked tailwheel. We lifted off about 25 feet and then crashed back down. <sighs> slid down the runway in a giant shower of sparks. And for some reason or other, those Bombay tanks didn't fracture. And, of course, with gasoline, we had all been incinerated. <sighs> well, we slid to the end of the runway, and the result is our group went on. We stayed there for another month until we could get another B 17 and then flew on, took off by herself in the daytime, and flew toward England. As I mentioned, we were everyone was poorly trained. The pilots were pretty good pilots, but the navigator in this question apparently lost his way flying over the ocean by herself. And uh, at one point, the pilot came on the air, we've been here a number of hours, and said, uh, start throwing everything overboard because we're running out of gas and we don't see any land in sight yet. Well, we did throw everything overboard and hope, and finally at the last moment, they spotted land. It turned out to be Ireland. We landed at a very small field in Ireland, and that's my first experience with peat fires. We spent three nights there freezing with a peat fire, regassed and flew on to Prestwick, and then on to Shelveston, where Colonel May was our commander, and that was my first experience with B 17s.
0: My goodness! I just want to remind our listeners, Don, we're listening to K, you're listening to KUCI eighty-eight point nine FM in Irvine, and we're listening today to uh, the veteran a tech sergeant in the Air Force, Don Fisher. Uh, he's ca- talking to us from Santa Barbara, but uh, he's a re- um, regularly a, a, a citizen of Eugene, Oregon. We're so. So fortunate to have Don Fisher on our show. Ask a leader this morning. So Don, now we're listen, We listeners are following you. You're in England now, and you're you're uh, about to make uh, your missions over uh, the main continent in World War II. So can you talk to us? Um, I guess what you've talked about so many slips of fate that uh, you survived. Can you tell our listeners, Don? about what happened on the mission where you joined a new crew as a radio operator on April 4th, 1943.
1: Yes, I can. Thank Uh, you. Actually, uh, yes, I'd be happy to. Actually, I flew the crew I was with, uh, trained with, and then flew across the ocean. Uh, I flew five missions with them, and understand um, how bad the weather is in England during that time. Excuse me. I was there from November uh, 42 till I got shot down in April of 43, and flew exactly 10 missions. The rest of the time we spent uh, flying training missions around England. We did have some time off for uh, to go to London and so forth. But uh, after we got to um, uh, Shelveston, I flew the five missions by the original crew in a ball turret. During that time. Um, I never did get the, uh, during that time, I never did get the fire at a German fighter. The turret hangs below the plane, and the German fighters usually attack directly from the front. Well, the radio operator on one of our adjoining planes in the squadron was badly wounded by flak, and since I had a, ra- a radio MOS, that's your training thing in the Air Force, I was transferred to his crew and flew five more missions. At that time, you were required to fly, I believe, 25 missions. One of the problems was that, at that, that incidentally, that was November to April of '43. The Air Force was losing 35 percent of the planes every time we went out, wow. and that, and that was pretty tough. And as a result, during the time of the war, they did end up losing. 4,500 B-17s and B24s over the European theater.
0: Spot on, that is a third of the force as it was report how many were manufactured. All right. Wow, that's a huge percentage.:
1: I'm sorry about what that, that,
0: that is a huge percentage, Don, as you were saying. That, the percentage of B-17s lost yeah. over, uh, in German combat, that is incredible. Yes, it
1: is, and you think, when you think that each one had 10 men on it. And in addition to that, the, condition, the air conditions flying over England were so bad when all these planes were trying to mass up and get together to fly over in early morning, the English bombers were just coming back from their nighttime mission. Oh, goodness. So you had American bombers flying in clouds trying to find each other. You had English planes coming back, and the result is... There were 300 B17s and 24s lost over England in mid-air collisions. Now, now obviously all those men weren't killed. Many of them parachuted out the same as uh, over France. But that that was one of the hazards of flying at that time.
0: Yes. Yes. Well, Don, can you tell us now? I want us I want our listeners to hear your incredible story of what happened with that mission, when you were radio operator on the B seventeen on April fourth, nineteen forty three, walk us through as many, many of the details, and I'll sort of, um I'll okay, we'll work Surely. together on this. Please tell us about what happened that day. All right,
1: be happy to. This was a mission to uh, bomb the Renault Auto Works. It was actually making trucks for the Germans on the outskirts of Paris, in April fourth, nineteen forty three, and that would have turned out to be one of the days it was a beautiful day. Actually, it was beautiful in England. And uh, I've read information since uh, uh, put out by the Germans that they knew exactly what was happening. They, their uh, primitive radar showed the groups forming over England, and then the direction they went. So their, their fighters had advance information on where it appeared the American bombers were going. We did form that day, and it was supposed to be one of the most successful bombing missions that the Air Force ever had. The Germans reported, that, and the Americans confirmed it, that almost 100 percent of the bombs lit right in the factory area. So with that, there were probably a minimum of regular civilians got injured or killed. And it was a, actually was a picnic trip up to that time. There wasn't much flack over Paris. And we turned around and started back home. At that time, we were set upon by what seemed a swarm of German falkwolf fighters. And uh, they were attacking from, and I was in the radio uh, uh, cabin by this time, which is in the middle of the B-17s, and we. I could see them coming, and we, a radio operator has a single machine gun, and I did fire that several times, although I just, Honestly, never. I don't think I ever came close to shooting down a German fighter. About uh, 45 minutes or so from Paris, going back toward England, just north of Rouen, we our plane was hit, and two engines were knocked out, and apparently the, uh, the third one was injured. Well, uh, we fell out. We slowed down and fell out of formation, and began to began to circle in large flat circles. The procedure was: if you did that, the German fighters really swarmed on you and just loaded you up with shells, which they did us. And in this, and in this thing, the uh, our tail gunner was hit in the his cabin was hit, and uh, he had terrible injuries in his right hip. We heard no information on our intercom from the front end. Well, I found out years, many years later, in fact, just a couple of years ago that. The front end had, had a 20-millimeter uh, cannon shell come through that killed the uh, tour, uh, top turret gunner, injured the pilot, co-pilot, and knocked out all communication, wow. which prohibited them from telling us you know, if to, to bail out. Well, since we in the back, and I was supposed to be the head man as a operator, we had no communication. We were obviously going down. We decided to all bail out. Uh, we got the tail gunner out then the waist gunners jumped out and i bailed out and as radio operator you you stand up so you generally don't fasten the leg harness if you're a parachute uh, apparently i forgot to fasten both straps of mine maybe one had been fastened anyway i got to the rear door and the plane was still uh, we were still able to bail out i went out and i immediately became unconscious and i came through hanging my parachute, and I looked down, and here looked to be at least one leg strap flapping. Ugh. Now, I had seen men who had the same situation, they'd, they'd jumped out without their uh, harness being fastened completely, and you know, it slipped right out of their parachute and just fell to their death. Fortunately, for some reason or other, another another again, fate or good luck, it happened to me. I came to and here I was hanging in a parachute on a in a perfectly gorgeous day like it is in Santa Barbara here today. Yes. There wasn't a breath of air. I could look down I suppose fifteen to eighteen thousand feet and see Frenchmen out walking in this gorgeous sunny Sunday afternoon. And they could see what was happening up in the air. It was absolutely quiet, just as it was quiet as I've ever heard it. And I've You don't get a sense of falling until you're below the horizon. I just seem to be suspended in midair. At that point, I heard an engine coming back, and I thought, "Uh uh-oh, what's happening now? And uh, sure enough, the German fighter that shot us came back, and I thought, well, I wonder what will happen. Will he shoot me or not? Well, to make a long story short, he circled me, looked at me very close, about 100 yards away, saluted me, and flew off.
0: Amazing. It's amazing, Don.
1: Well, the you have to remember that the German Air Force was kind of the elite of the German forces, and most of them are not the hardcore Nazis. And uh, like it, whether you like it or not, they perform by what's uh, known as the, the rules of war, which means you don't shoot an enemy, enemy combatant when you know he's beaten. Well, to make a long story short, he flew off. I went, continued on down, and lit on the ground in in a freshly plowed field in French countryside. There were about twenty Frenchmen standing there watching me come down, and never having made a parachute, I didn't know what to do. But fortunately for me, again, there was no there wasn't a breath of wind. You just fell straight down like a stone falling,
2: Uh
1: and I lit in this freshly plowed field and rolled over on my backside and. There was a French doctor standing there, it turned out, who spoke English.
0: Oh, my God.
1: And he said to me, uh, give us your parachute and go over and talk to your tail gunner. He's over here. We're taking care of him. He's badly wounded. We'll take care of him. And then you run for the woods because the Germans know you're here and they'll be looking for you. Oh, my. Well, I did go over and talk to the tail gunner. and He was conscious. And uh, then I went back to where the Frenchmen were, and they said, run for the woods, get, get to the woods. Well, that's what I did. I ran for the woods and hid in that the rest of the afternoon.
0: That's just amazing, Don. You're, I want to remind our listeners, you're listening to Don Fisher this morning. We're calling it Ask a Soldier, and Don Fisher is tracing us through a fateful uh, stint in World War II, where now we have him hiding in the French countryside in April of 1943. So you are now, you are without any resources, you're living by your wits at this point. Tell us how um, you managed to meet, uh, how did you start, you met with some very courageous uh, French Households in that countryside—you man—they set you up with uh, getting you out. You've got so many things to say in such a in our morning show. Tell us what you'd like about any of those households before one of those households sets you up to leave uh, for Rouen.
1: Yes. Well, the first one, uh, of course, when I left uh, and ran to the woods, I stayed in the woods for just the afternoon. And uh, there was a very large French farmhouse about a quarter mile away that obviously owned the fields where I was. So I stayed there until afternoon, then crept up to the outside the house in late evening. And I remember to this day I could hear a couple little French girls shouting at each other with their very high pitched voices, <laughs> and I heard the name like a uh, French name like Cecile or one of the French girls' names, and I stayed stayed there till dark then. And when it got dark, I went up to the door and knocked on the door. And lo and behold, one of the little girls I had heard before answered the door, and she just looked at me and said, Papa, and the father came running over. He looked at me, just took me by the front of his shirt and pulled me in the door. Wow. Well, the little girls could speak enough English uh, so that they told me, Excuse me, that I could stay there that night, but I'd have to leave in the morning because the Germans were looking for me. And during the uh, parachute jump, I had injured the front of my face, although in the excitement I didn't realize it. Well, they cleaned me up, and it wasn't serious. It was bruises and cuts and that kind of thing. And I did stay there that night, and they gave me enough food, and they said, oh, you have to leave. Well, what was I to do? I started south. It was a bright, sunny day, and I could tell the directions, So I walked through the woods for all that day and uh, got to the end of the woods about 3 o'clock in the afternoon. And uh, here was a little French farmhouse, a very little one, uh, sitting down the road on the edge of the road. So I stayed in the stone quarry where I was till about 6 o'clock. And then a man came pedaling home on his bicycle. He had a French beret on and, as you see many of them, a typical French cigarette hanging out of his mouth. He went in the house and I stayed there watching it. Pretty soon he came out and walked down the little lane ahead of me and came back uh, with a goat, leading it by the rope. And as he approached me, I just stepped out of the uh, brush and he looked at me, didn't say a word, and just crooked his finger like, follow me. So I just followed him into the house. And one thing that's interesting here, I spoke very little French, almost none. They spoke no English. And we had an English-French dictionary, and if you want a uh, difficult time, try to converse using a French-English dictionary on both sides. Anyway, uh, Claudia, I stayed, ended up staying there for almost four months, and through a fluke, they got in. we got in touch with a person who was a member of a beginning French underground group. He was a longtime friend of theirs. And he said, I think I can get papers for him and we can get him to Paris. And then at that time, they were sending all the flyers and escapees. We were called uh, evader of capture or escapee. They were sending them to Spain. It was fairly easy to travel by train then, even with the proper papers. Well, they kept me there for, uh, well, let's see, four months. And then he said, well, it's about, you know, through this broken French and English. yes, It's time to for you to uh, go to Paris to meet the man there who will get you on the train to go to Fran- go to, uh, to Spain.
0: Spain. Mm-hmm.
1: And we did take, I'd taken several uh, training trips with them on a little train at ran de Veron, which is uh, in Normandy. And they said, well, you have to be able to see Germans around and uh, soldiers and not flinch or talk or do anything. And they said, one thing to do, we're going to get you tickets on a train from Rouen into Paris. You get in and then you sit down in the regular compartments they have there and don't say a word. And when you get to the station in Paris where you are, a man will meet you carrying a briefcase with a piece of flexible tubing hanging out of it. Wow. So I'd, never, I'd never been to Paris before, and I didn't know what the jam the, the people would make or anything.
0: Well, Don, Don one thing, though. Your French and their, or their English or your broken pig uh, uh, franglish, it had to be good enough so that you'd know what that tube, I mean, you had to know what they were describing. That's not an everyday product.
1: Well, there's one thing about it, Claudia. When you're, when you're uh, subjected to nothing but French, all the time you're awake, you begin to pick up quite a bit of it.
0: So you knew exactly what kind of an article you were supposed to look for. I mean, that's incredible. Uh,
1: well, no, they just said there'll be a man, and you know, innocent me. I'd never, coming from Steubenville, I'd never <laughs> had any experiences like this. Right. And so I just had to go on what they said. Well, the day of the, uh, when I would get, supposed to get, go to Paris, I went over, got on the little train uh, that went into Rouen, got in the station. We had done this on one trip before, just yes. as a uh, trial. And I did do it right. I found a train that was going to Paris, and you went down several stairs and got on this train and got on in a compartment and sat down. And lo and behold, across from us, we were sitting, came in and sat down three German soldiers. Mm-hmm. And he sat three on the side in each bench, and then beside me were a pair of French people who had bought their own food and everything else. They also said, as far as anyone's concerned, you're deaf mute. <laughs> so, hey, the train from Rouen to Paris, as I recall, it stopped a number of places, took about oh two hours, I guess. And during that time, the Germans talked themselves. They looked at me. I looked at them. They looked at the French, and no one spoke to one another. Then, so then when we got to the Paris but train Don, station, Don, and I forget which one it is, Don, they're all huge. And many people were, thousands were traveling by train. As I got off the train, the hundreds of people that were getting off the train and then people coming out to get on, I thought, how am I ever going to find anybody? What am I going to do now? Well, after about five minutes, out of this crowd, here came a man walking with the briefcase and a piece of flexible tubing
0: my goodness but don I, I so i'll direct you to the full interview Don, on it's archived in ask a leader october 9 2010 and we'll go for a break now and then we'll be back with don epstein don't go away stay with us My next guest is Don Lipstein with Tragedy Assistance Programs for Survivors, or TAPS is the acronym, and he's the surviving father of Navy Master at Arms II, Joshua Lipstein, who died by suicide in March 2011 following his second deployment to Iraq. Don's son, Joshua, was among the first to volunteer for duty as a riverine patrolling the waterways in Iraq Josh served two combat deployments to Iraq. He left behind a wife and a young baby. Don knew his son was in trouble and was actually um, trying to help him at the time of his death. Don was the last person with whom his son ever spoke. Don coordinates peer mentoring for TAP's suicide survivors. Moreover, he matches those newly mourning a military suicide with those who lost a loved one and are farther along in the grieving process. It is important to have Don on today so that we can have him share in his knowledge about trauma, this trauma, so that we can gain a better understanding for those in our midst Don Lipstein comes to us today from West Chester, Pennsylvania. Welcome to the show, Don.
2: Thank you for having me, Claudia.
0: Well, before, Don, we engage in the interview, let me please take stock of your grief in losing Joshua, and then I want to honor how far you have come in dealing with this grief and helping others cope. I know that... Okay. Yes, I know how forthcoming you are in talking about your deeply personal loss, Don. Would you please tell us about your son Joshua's circumstances after his second deployment in Iraq?
2: Uh, sure, and, and it's a long story. I won't take uh, up too much time with that, but he basically came home with um, a tumor uh, that was uh, it was making it difficult for him to hear out of his right ear. After a um, very long surgery which was successful uh, he was no longer able to perform the duties that uh, that he was doing prior to which um, included you know, carrying weapons so he was he was uh, stationed um, monitoring security cameras and sitting at a desk uh, and uh, this, just wasn't what he had signed up to do. He didn't want to be doing that. So uh, uh, that, along with uh, wanting to be home with his wife and child in uh, in Texas, and then his mother uh, also a month prior to uh, Joshua taking his life, his his mother, my ex wife, died uh, from cancer that she had been suffering from for. About three or four years. So all, all of that uh, led up to uh, the stresses that uh, caused him to decide that he would be better off uh, dead.
0: And so, Don, you've talked then about there were so many confounding factors uh, that he wasn't able to be with his newly born son that could have been a sort of a, a process of nurturing for him to engage in that might have been an antidote to his his uh, displacement uh, in transitioning back to civilian life, his uh, lack of gainful employment with the Navy upon his return, his lack of the support of his wife. He was not living in his uh, home with his wife, and he was at the base there, and it's back in Virginia, correct? Is, was it Norfolk? or? Um?
2: It, it was, yes, Norfolk.
0: Oh, so it was there that... Um, so, so many confounding factors. And then uh, an additional one, which we want to, uh, uh, take some time about discussing here is the fact that within the military, there still is a tremendous stigma about mental illness and what, um, what is the military's role in that. So, could you talk a bit about that huge barrier for, for Joshua getting the right kind of, uh, fit? It was difficult.
2: Uh, yes, it was, and and you know he had a lot of stressors. Um, he was suffering from depression, suffering from anxiety, and decided that self medication uh, would help him. And and it you know in his mind it was helping, but the substance abuse was certainly uh, an, another factor um, with his. Uh, you taking his life. So, uh, and, and there, I think the military, they teach um, their recruits to be tough and to withstand a lot of pain. And to then try to reach out and ask for help, I think is very difficult for a lot of our, our soldiers, our military personnel, to be able to do comfortably I think some of them also fear that their jobs may be in jeopardy if they were to speak out and and say, you know hey i'm I'm struggling here. Uh, they also may feel the stigma uh, of you know being looked down upon or or possibly losing some of the the uh, privileges that that they may have. Um, so uh, there's a lot of issues that that surround that for them.
0: And the another confounding factor was that he was in a bind that he couldn't be discharged until he had uh, dealt with uh, the the re all the rehab situation. But but dealing with that rehab situation wasn't workable in the kind of a social professional vacuum he was in. So it was you. I'm sure you were absolutely uh, you know um, riveted to a. Uh, in, in a horrified way, how to get out of this bind, help him get out of the bind he was in.
2: Yes, and, and I didn't realize until um, speaking to him on the phone uh, just before mm-hmm. he uh, decided to uh, take his life, I didn't realize how how bad it was. Um, and, and, you know, he... Uh, didn't want to share those kinds of things with me. He shared uh, the good stuff, uh, and that, I think, again, is part of the stigma and, and part of the, um, the issue that he dealt with and, and so many of our military people are dealing with, that they don't want to uh, let their loved ones know what's going on, um, so it's kind of hidden. Uh, and again, that's the
0: stigma. For those of you who are joining Ask a leader, yes. For those of you who are joining Ask a Leader at this time, it's my honor and privilege to have with us Don Lipstein, peer mentor coordinator of uh, tra- at Tragedy Assistance Program for Survivors. We'll call it TAPS from time to time. He's a surviving father of Joshua Lipstein, who served in the Navy, who took his life. In March 2011, um, this is Ask a Leader on KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine, and on the web at kuci.org. Well, one one kind of a refrain that uh, it comes up in in the coverage of uh, PTSD is that the military it it's trained men and women for war, but they've never untrained them for normal life. And you saw that happening, and you keep seeing that happening as you're reaching out to new survivors of suicides in the military?
2: Yeah, I think they, they um, have a very lonely feeling uh, after they've deployed and, and spend time with their comrades. Um, and then they come home and, you know, the, the, they're uh, they feel a little lost because their regimented routine that they may have had while they were over there deployed uh, is no longer um, the same, it's changed. Um, I think they also feel like they're letting people down uh, by expressing um, their and their experiences of depression and anxiety and and stress that they they don't want to let their um, you know their their guys that they uh, went to battle with they don't want to let them down so they're they're holding it all in and and yes and, it, and our military you know it rightfully so we we train train them to be tough to be uh resilient and uh but but we don't train them how to uh integrate back into society
0: and so it's not it's not uh, just the um the uh routine and the regimentation but i think there there's a certain kind of um, a, an intensity that doesn't uh present itself in civilian life that uh get, you know is the the as the other aspect that they're they're seeking right did joshua talk about that
2: you know joshua i think part of his uh, deal was that he had these goals he had it he had in mind that he wanted to do a 20 year um, career in the Navy, and then when he got out, he was going to either join the FBI, CIA, or NSA, mm-hmm. and serve our country that way. Um, when his tumor affected his hearing, and, and it was a permanent hearing loss, uh, the uh, his whole um, his whole career, he thought went down the tubes with that, and. So he was kind of lost. He just didn't um, have the same... Like, he didn't know what he was going to be doing. He once had no he plan.
0: Of, right. No plan but, at all.
2: Right. He, he. you know, he was trying to figure it out, I, at least I thought, but um, but all of his dreams kind of went down down the tube.
0: Well, I, I want, as we are talking about your own personal story, that um, it's... Uh, you have been amazingly uh, able to, I think, uh, in some ways, redeem this loss with uh, your involvement. You found TAPS. Let's talk about first how how TAPS seemed to be the right fit for you surviving, Joshua.
2: Well, I, I've experienced uh, grief prior to Joshua dying. Um, when my mom died, uh, it hit me kind of hard. And so I, I did a lot of reading and I did a lot of research. And one of the things I, I found out was that in grief, you, you have to face it. You can't run from it. You have to face it, and uh, it will catch up to you if you don't just deal with it. So I knew right away uh, when Joshua died that I was going to have to reach out for some, some help. Uh, there was no way that I was going to be able to do it myself. And uh, I reached out to many different places. Uh, TAPS was the, the one place that, I, when I saw the brochure that my, my um, casualty assistance officer gave me, I looked at the brochure and it said on there, remember the love, celebrate the life, and share the journey. Yes. When I, when I saw that, it resonated with me and I picked up the phone and I called and sure enough, the, the people that I spoke to on the phone were so um, engaging, they, they, I could feel that they were there with me, that they felt my pain and that they understood it. And that that was truly the only, the only group of people that I had found that was able to get me. Um, and then I went to one of their seminars out in Colorado springs in um it was a suicide uh survivor seminar and everyone I met uh, was just amazingly comforting to me uh it was I felt like I had found a new family so um yeah that uh, they we do it right I can say we do it right because i i uh, have since uh joined. The ranks of TAPS. Um, through my healing, uh, I felt the need to give back, and uh, and that's how I I became uh, a, a member of the TAPS family.
0: Don, I just wanted to uh, just be sh- uh, clarify here that the casualty assistance officer was that with the military. Then that's that is a person who made an effective connection for you.
2: Yes, he um, he dropped. Uh, And he was part of the navy, um, and he showed up the day after Joshua died uh, to announce to me that you know he had died. But I already knew that. So, um, but he uh, you know was there to help me to assist me with um, what uh, what I needed to do as a surviving father, and. He left me with a whole bunch of uh, brochures of different places that I could reach out to for help. Um, And uh, what um, TAPS is doing currently, we have have agreements with every branch of the military, with the exception of the Army, uh, to actually take over for the casualty assistance officers of each branch um they'll introduce us um to the families, and there's a memorandum of agreement that we then uh will take over and assist them with uh with the things that they need to know uh because it is uh it's very daunting the mm. everything you know there's no need to know it until you need to know it right. so that, that's where tax comes in.
0: Well, that's that's good to know. Then that there is a a real jump on uh, providing that connection as soon as possible. It's a it's a marvel. So there there is a major inroad the military is making in in uh, supporting survivals uh, survivors of, of suicide in the in the military. So I I want um, to in keeping this uh, deeply personal here. I there is a structural matter that you brought up as we were preparing for this interview that uh amidst these suicides occurring there is a very dicey dynamic between the parents of the person who's taken their life and the usually it's the wife sometimes i guess it's a a, a, a husband but uh, there that relationship is it's a very tricky one with the a, a blame that might be assigned to the other I would like uh for you uh, to have an opportunity to say uh, how you were uh, you were able to um, work out what was a, a it was a complicated uh, arc on, upon which Joshua's wife was on um, after his suicide occurred.
2: Sure, um, my daughter in law and Josh actually never had an opportunity to live together um, with his. Uh, Getting out of the navy shortly, we we anticipated he would be out um, before his daughter would, was even going to be born. Um, but you know, because of um, things that occurred, uh, he was still in there. In any case, um, um, they never got a chance to live together, uh, mm-hmm. and my daughter-in-law took it very hard as as. Many surviving spouses do. Yes. And I'm sure that there were all kinds of um, things going on with her, guilt and, and shame and um, just, you know, a sense of deep loss and, and anger, you know, because she was looking forward to him coming home. Um, and so she struggled and had a lot of personal struggles herself. And something that TAPS taught me, um, because I had heard through many um, other surviving parents and surviving spouses that there, there, were, there was a lot of tension that, that goes on because there's a blame game that can, that can happen. Well, I knew, I knew that it wasn't um, Leslie's fault at all that Joshua um, took his life. And so I just had to be patient with her, and I, I was. I was very patient. I let her know that I loved her and that, you know, she just needed some time and she needed to work through her grief. And initially, she she made some bad choices um, working through that grief. But once she got to a point, and probably, you know, her lowest point, she realized that She was throwing her life away, and she then started dealing with her grief, and we have a wonderful relationship now, and and I'm just so thankful for that. Um, Our families have gotten tighter um, and uh, stronger, and, you know, I I have a granddaughter um, who reminds me every day uh, of her father Mm. and... That's a beautiful relationship um, so i'm I'm very thankful and blessed and and I feel like Joshua uh, has left me and and my family with the gift of uh, leslie jaden and and their family
0: a very deep connection with all yes. the, the survivors and i i I really do honor that, and I'm so glad that listeners have had a chance to hear th- this account along with all the chapters of Your Surviving Joshua. I'm, I wanted to give you a chance here as we're closing to talk about the essence of TAPS, uh, as you mentioned to me in preparing for the interview too, that there aren't necessarily chapters throughout the country. What How TAPS is getting this important job done is by matching peer with peer t- to deal with the grieving. So it's, a, it's the branch is a matched at uh, the branch of the person um, who um, took their own life. The branch, it's the relationship to that person, sur- the, sur- the survivors' relationship, uh, that is also matched in the TAP connections that are made. So, and you are coordinating that peer matching and peer mentoring uh, in TAPS, and it's uh, it's there. There is nothing more more. Uh, um, Elegant and effective in in making um make helping others in their recovery. It's uh, can you talk a little bit more about that, maybe in some detail?
2: Sure, uh, Bonnie Carroll, the founder of, of TAPS, nineteen years ago, um, found out that there really wasn't enough support for uh, surviving spouses. Her husband died in a in a uh, helicopter accident. He served in the Alaska National Guard. And there were other uh, men that died in that same helicopter, Uh, and Bonnie and those surviving spouses got together to support each other, and she found that that truly was the best source of support. So she modeled Taps after the support that she received. Yes, and. Um, And it has just been proven over and over again that, you know, how can somebody that has not experienced this type of loss, how can they understand and know uh, what I'm experiencing? So that's that's where the beauty of TAPS comes in, because we are matching people that have similar circumstances, and it may not always be the, the same branch, but... Uh, we do um, generally match the relationship of the deceased and the the cause of death as well. Um, suicide survivors are are in need of other suicide survivors. Um, if they're combat uh, death, combat related death, it, it's helpful to have a combat related death person that has experienced that that loss too. You know that geographically, uh, it's helpful, but it's not necessary to be close um, because of of how we uh, do our peer mentoring. And it, it truly is; um, it's magical. It's healing mm-hmm. for both the mentee and the mentor. Um, the mentor to be able to give back and and help somebody, support somebody that um, at, because they've had that support from someone else.
0: And then... That- all of that that is given from the mentor to mentee, it's all coming through with such a profound clarity with you on the program today. I want to give listeners an opportunity to seek out uh, the resources available. It's at TAPS.org. There is a number 1-800-959-TAPS. Uh, that's the Tragedy Assistance Program for Survivors provides free peer-based emotional support groups, seminars and retreats for adults and also a good grief camp for children. Well, I I there are other messages I would like to have covered today and I'm so sorry there is not more time I've run over as it is. Don Lipstein, I want to thank you very much and may I say really with all the earnestness I can muster it's an honor and a privilege to have you on the show with your inestimable clarity for us, your profound understanding for all survivors. I wish you, Don Lipstein, all the best and our heartfelt sympathies to the Lipsteins, all of you.
2: Claudia, thank you for having me on. I'm very grateful to you and and what you're doing.
0: Thank you, and I hope that maybe there will be yet another opportunity for some specific questions. I know from listeners I'm going to get some. I can't take calls in, but we will... um, I'd like to hold open a, a prospect of talking with you again, Don. Take care.
2: Absolutely.
0: All right. Well, that concludes that full interview. It's available on my website, escalatorcom As I said, the June 25th, 2013 edition. Don, as I just, I just want to remind everybody, he's no longer at TAPS. He's with Imagine Family Recovery, doing an amazing job there. And he's, we still stay in touch. I always appreciate hearing from him. So that's my wrap next week. Gloria Mark, UCI professor of informatics. Her book she's going to be talking about is Attention Span, a groundbreaking way to restore balance, happiness, and productivity. Thanks, everybody, for listening, and talk with you next week.